Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this episode, I want to talk about some of the political dynamics shaking out right now in Arizona. We'll touch on a few specific statewide issues, but let's start more broadly. Uh, There was a recent guest piece in the Arizona Republic by Nathan Sproul raising the point that the demographics in Arizona are changing in ways that favor Democrats. And he listed uh, how people are moving here from, from more liberal states and becoming more, more diverse. And while this is happening, the Arizona, Republic in, the Arizona Republican Party is sort of doubling down on, on Trumpism right now. Uh, the party itself is imitating Trump's tone. They're playing to the base. Seems like the moderate ones are silently watching this happen. Uh, Martha McSally has gone almost all in uh, as much as you can on on Trump and also imitating his his tone. And Doug Ducey uh, has gone out of his way to to show his support of Trump, not only chairing uh, the reelection campaign uh, for Trump 2020, but even retroactively trying to shore up questions about his support of Trump in 2016. So do you do you see the same changes happening in Arizona looking forward? And, and if so, is this strategy that the Republican Party is is running, is that going to backfire over them if over these next couple election cycles? Uh, 2018 was a very good and significant election for Democrats. Uh, for the first time since 2006, uh, they won some uh, statewide offices. And so that naturally raises the question of what's changed in the Arizona electorate to produce such a dramatically different uh, result. I, I am skeptical of the explanation um, that it's a bunch of new people moving up, moving in with a different ideological uh, attitude or a uh, increase in Latino uh, representation. Uh, the Democratic registration disadvantage has narrowed somewhat. Uh, the uh, Republican turnout advantage uh, diminished somewhat in 2018. Uh, but the Republican registration advantage still is very large, roughly 135,000 uh, voters. And Republicans were still in 2008 over 40% of the overall turnout. So what I think happened in 2018 was a return to an Arizona tradition of ticket splitting. Uh, where Democrats are willing to vote for some Republicans and Republicans are willing to vote for some Democrats. I think that there was a sharper uh, inclination to ticket split among uh, Republicans, about 17%, according to the exit poll, the Arizona exit poll, uh, about 17% of Ducey voters actually voted for Sinema. Um, So... Um, The question is, was that a one-off from 2018? Is there demographic changes that will inexorably move the state to be more competitive? Or was 2018 sort of a one-off? And I do think that there was a 
anti-Trump element to the results in 2018. Uh, He is a weak candidate in Arizona. He carried the state by approximately half uh, the percentage points that Mitt Romney carried it by. He ran way behind John McCain uh, in 2016. And I think there was an anti-Trump backlash Uh, in 2018 that partially explains the success of Democrats. So I do believe that there is uh, tactical danger in the Republican Party making itself the party of Trump uh, rather than uh, reflecting more of the Arizona tradition of John McCain and Doug Ducey which Martha McSally could fit comfortably within, but seems to want to role play um, uh, and uh, do the exclusive base appeal as opposed to following Richard Nixon's formula for Republican electoral success, which is a Republican can't win without conservatives, but a Republican also can't win with only conservatives. What... Is it just the, the the pressure of the personality of Trump and his national campaign? Why these why these Arizona figures are doing it, or is it is it do they think that's the only way they can survive? Because we've we've talked in this podcast before about this, and you you said you know a couple of years ago that Ducey was was doing the best job that you had seen of staying sort of neutral as much as you can on not not being a Trumpist but then not being a, a never-Trumper. But it seems like he has gone out of his way to sort of, you know, become tied in his legacy to Trump. And, um, you know, McSally, this, the same thing. I think running as an independent centrist Republican, you know, I think would have been more appealing to people. So what is it to the pressure of the Trump campaign or why are these really prominent, probably the two most prominent current Arizona uh, officials that are Republicans, why are they choosing to more closely associate themselves with a very unpopular and divisive president? I I think there are um, various factors at work. Uh, Trump does have a extremely loyal and unforgiving base. Uh, So uh, there is some danger uh, to a Republican uh, candidate um, uh, not to show sufficient loyalty to the president. And and Jeff Flake concluded that he had had no chance to win um, a Republican primary because he was unwilling to to do that. But I don't think that's the only explanation. And I don't think, for example, that it explains what Doug Ducey is doing. Uh, We do have a presidential election coming up. Which party controls the presidency uh, is a very, very uh, important factor in the direction of the country. Trump's policies are generally supported by a much broader range of Republicans uh, than uh, approve of the way that he practices uh, politics. Um, Doug Ducey, for whatever reason, uh, wants to have a national profile of some sort. Uh, 
So I don't think that it is uh, Ducey um, drinking the Kool-Aid uh, as much as it is him making tactical decisions based upon what he believes in and what he perceives to be in his own self-interest uh, moving forward on a uh, national stage. Is it possible that that strategy backfires? It seems less likely now. I, I used to think that it might be a good move for a Republican to come out and actually be actively against Trumpism to be the leader of the post-Trump Republican Party. But there's like theories and, and, and writings in the, among conservatives right now that saying that maybe Trumpism is forever. Maybe it doesn't go away. Maybe... Um, you know, Trumpism is still around. All the loyalists are still around. There's Trump kids still around that are that are um, probably eyeing elected office. Uh, is there so? So I mean, some of the people that they would call themselves principal conservatives, uh, like Flake or like others, that just said, "Let let me just stand the sidelines for a while and wait till this blows over, and then I'll reassert myself." And it seems like maybe. Trumpism isn't going away, uh, but do you see? So, so instead of what I used to think is maybe attaching yourself to Trump will doom you in the in five years when Trump loses or he, or he's out of office and everyone's like, oh, that was crazy times when, you know, everyone was latched themselves to Trump and and saying crazy stuff that's not conservative. You know, <clears throat> where do you see this going? I guess is is the question. Do you think there is? Um, a possibility of a Republican Party in the future where uh, pr- principal conservatism can can exist? Or, you know, I guess, is the Republican Party even sal- salvageable at this point as something other than a protectorate of Trump and Trumpism? I, I, I don't—there obviously is deep personal loyalty to Donald Trump, and uh, that is a voting issue um, for at least a third of— um, the Republican uh, base. Um, but I, I think there's something broader going on. There, There is an ascendancy of populist conservatism, not only in this country, um, but in uh, Western Europe as well. Uh, and uh, Trump is the emblem of that and the leader of that in the United States. But I think it has a standing... Um, independent of Trump. There is also the um, peculiar way that Trump practices politics, um, where you have very personal attacks uh, as his primary way of um, conducting um, a campaign. Um, I don't think anyone else can do what Trump does the way that Trump does it uh, without there being a backlash. If Trump were to come a cropper in uh, the 2020 election, uh, get beat and get beat badly, particularly if he gets if he gets beat by a um, very liberal candidate such as Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, uh, then I think there will be some reckoning. Um, for politicians that adhered too closely uh, to um, 
him in terms of personal loyalty and not being willing to differentiate between the policies and the way that he conducts uh, politics. I do believe that there is a good 15-20% of the electorate who are primarily economic conservatives uh, with um, sort of a libertarian perspective. Uh, whether the Republican Party remains the vehicle through which they try to express themselves and influence events politically, uh, I think is up in the air. Um, I think that uh, what Trump has done, for the most part, is compatible with what economic conservatives want. Trade protectionism would be the one exception to that. Uh, so I don't know that the tent will be shrunk to the point that economic conservatives will feel left out. And if Trump comes a cropper, then I think the ascendancy of populist conservatives as opposed to economic conservatives, as opposed to business conservatives, um, that relative balance within the party, I think, would be subject to shifting. It kind of bothers me that it's never really been tested. I mean, Flag didn't run, so we don't know. You know, who I mean, who would have beat him? Kelly Ward in a in a primary? I mean, is well, the exit poll in 2018 <laughs> asked the question whether people approved or disapproved of uh, Jeff Flake's performance in office, and over 60 percent of the electorate disapproved. But he, but so he. he I, I, I think that he did not see a path where he could both win yeah. a primary and win a general election. But he also didn't even didn't even try, and no one else has really tried either. I mean, McSally, uh, after after the first time that she lost, you know, she could have made a decision to run a more centrist uh, campaign. Would she have lost in a? You know, would someone have challenged her in a primary? I, would she? Could she have beaten a? a more firebrand Trumpist candidate in a primary? I don't, we don't know. I don't know. Well, she did in, in uh, 2018. Um, and but she still, she still hugged Trump enough to get through the she, primaries and she, not be seen. She, she did. And, and I don't know. I don't think that a Republican candidate has to disavow Trump uh, in order to um, succeed in a general election. He carried Arizona. He did better in Arizona than Martha McSally did. Um, I think he's likely to carry Arizona again in 2020. Um, but I do believe that there is an anti-Trump sentiment among some Republicans and particularly among independents that a Republican would get a larger share of the vote if not disavowing Trump, but charting an independent course of Trump in parallel and being willing to be more publicly critical than um, they tend to be now. I think McSally has proven that she's supportive of Trump's um, policies. Uh, he likes her. I, I think that she would have room uh, to... Um, run more as the center-right problem solver that at root she really is. And I think that would resonate enormously 
it fits the Arizona electorate. Um, I, I, Martha McSally and her decisions as to how she campaigns have been a mystery to me. I think that she lost the 2018 election by making uh, very substantial strategic uh, errors. And uh, my perception is, is that she's on her way to doing the same thing uh, in 2020. And I don't think it is uh, necessary. I think that she could retain the Trump base and make herself more appealing uh, to people who are alienated by the way that he practices politics um, without uh, jeopardizing a backlash, particularly at this point where she's, in essence, an incumbent. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it just bothered me that, you know, the Republicans didn't even, you know, including Martha McSally, didn't even make a pretense over being impartial, really, in interviews. And, and they just straight up said, you know, we're not even going to, we're recording this on the on the day of the uh, impeachment acquittal. Um, but it wasn't even a pretense. It wasn't even like, okay, let's look at both sides and really take this seriously. It was just like, this we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna follow the, the advice of the president's counsel and we're gonna get rid of this as soon as possible, and that just I mean to me it's like at least at least pretend that you're fulfilling your oath, you know as as being an impartial juror. It was to me that seemed like well the way, why not at least pretend to be independent the, the, minded the, about this. Well, th- this has been a, a partisan debacle all the way around. As I will be writing for Sunday, <laughs> I think the <clears throat> right way to view this is that it was a partisan railroad job in the House, um, followed by a partisan whitewash uh, in the Senate. She did, in her statement, say that what the president did was inappropriate. Um, So that is uh, something new. Um, I think it was more than uh, just inappropriate, but you did see several senators begin to at least distance themselves from what Trump did in this particular instance. Yeah. I didn't mean to bring up a whole conversation about impeachment just as an example of how closely, as everyone's probably observing as well, how closely the Republican Party is has sticking uh, to Trump. Didn't, didn't work out great in 2018. We'll see how it works out uh, for the Republican Party in uh, this upcoming election, 2020. Uh, I also want to touch on, on this episode and a few uh, state issues, specifically around education. Um, the first one <clears throat> is a battle over v- vouchers and 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 school choice continue to be a battlefield. And I really like the the lead uh, with the Arizona Republic Education reporter Lily Altavena saying that this. Uh, this new controversy about the Native American vouchers was like a Rorschach test that you could, that it just depends on who's looking at it, what they see. One side sees that um, there's a reasonable accommodation being made for Native Americans uh, on, on the border states getting, allowing to take their money two miles over the border to, to spend on, on private education. Uh, the other side is seeing this and, and seeing this is an attempt by um, school choice advocates to expand the voucher system, which will eventually just be a slippery slope to leading to to an expansion. 
So as you're looking at this uh, proposal to allow uh, students that have, that are in the ESA system to, to go across state lines for a limited amount uh, or, or a limited distance uh, over the over the border, what do you see when you look at that? Which I think it's a humanitarian gesture. Um, these are students who have been attending that school over the border. Um, they have um, settled um, educational experiences uh, with those schools. It is the schools where their parents think that they will get the best education. Um, and um, to me, it's just simply a humanitarian gesture um, to those students. And if there's other students along the borders who are in comparable circumstances, it would seem to me the humanitarian thing to do to enable them to cross an arbitrary state line to get the kind of education that their parents want them to have. The idea that this, that suddenly we're going to be sending kids to some fancy um, prep school back east uh, using Arizona taxpayer dollars, that's just not a realistic um, fear. And it's too bad uh, that we can't have a uh, more dispassionate, uh, less ideological approach um, to the discussion of these issues. Is there any reason, do you think, for the advocates to be suspicious at all of the motives of those who want to expand this? I mean, there's uh, Save Our Schools ran a, ran a huge grassroots campaign to stop the expansion of vouchers. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> this is a, you know, it seems to me like a humanitarian gesture. Um, but... Is there a is, is there a reason is there a, a reasonable cause for suspicion for those that are uh, prioritizing expanding this this voucher system and and doing this um, when 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 there still is you know gaps and 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 less full, fully funded as education advocates would like voucher supporters uh, believe that they should be universal should be available to every student. Um, and there has been a strategy by voucher supporters of picking off sympathetic audiences, um, the uh, um, special need kids uh, was kind of where it began, and it's expanded to the um, sons and daughters of military personnel, those in failing schools, so certainly there has been a strategy of trying to expand vouchers um, by uh, adding sympathetic categories. So for those who think there should be no vouchers, there is reason to believe that um, voucher supporters uh, do try to get the camel's nose under the tent. It just seems to me that in this particular case, uh, one could acknowledge um, that this really um, isn't the, the camel's nose under the tent. These are, are very specific circumstances. Uh, and uh, I think it reduces credibility when you cry wolf all the time. 
it strains credibility when voucher supporters say, oh, well, we just want it for this particular class, and then next year it's another class, and then next year it's another class. Um, my own view is that I'd like to see a um, public debate with a ballot measure that indeed did provide for uh, universal uh, vouchers. Uh, the Voters' Rights uh, Act make that difficult to do because there is some fear uh, that if the measure is voted down, uh, what currently exists gets locked in place and protected by the voters. Um, so I don't think you're going to see that, even though I think that's probably where the policy should ultimately be decided. The other news about ESAs making controversy is the uh, Department of Education uh, accidentally released uh, confidential information about the m people that are receiving uh, the ESAs. Um, <clears throat> the Republican Party is is sort of uh, making making a big deal and questioning the intention of uh, Kathy Hoffman. Uh, seems to me like a innocent. Uh, just a mistake. Uh, what are like? How should how should I don't know? How should Arizonans and how should you know fair-minded people who are observing this take away from um, what happened and and how they've responded to it? I don't believe that it was malintended. Uh, there was an attempt to redact the personal information. There, the reporter. For the Capital Times, who made the request, um, wanted account balances. He wanted to see what kind of account balances were being developed uh, in these um, scholarship accounts. Uh, the department, in providing him that information, uh, redacted um, the personal identifying information, but uh, did it in a way that it could still be revealed. <laughs> Uh, and uh, the Cap Times figured out how to uh, reveal it. While I don't believe it was malintended, it has pretty dramatic consequences. Um, naturally, reporters now want to follow up and try to find... There are some accounts with very large balances. Um, there's a natural curiosity as to what's the explanation for that. Um, so um, parents are being uh, contacted uh, when federal law uh, prohibits the release of this information. I'm Kathy Hoffman strikes me as a technocrat. I mean, clearly, if you have someone who's going to be engaged in redactions to uh, public record requests. You should have someone who is technologically uh, competent in actually making sure that it's redacted. So it's on her um, that she didn't have someone with those skills doing this. Uh, but I don't think it was malintended, and Republicans are trying to seize upon it because you've got a Democrat in uh, the superintendent's office for the first time in a very, very long time. Is it ethical for a reporter to follow up on that when he wasn't supposed to have that information and it's supposed to be confidential? Um, I believe uh, that it is. 
I mean, there is now a public policy question. You've got some accounts with very large balances. My guess is it's because of having students that are severely disabled. You, you, you can't, you, you never get enough from the, even if you save every dime, you don't get enough from the state to build these large account balances unless you have a severely uh, disabled student. Um, but when you've got those large account balances, it raises the public policy question of why and whether something needs to be done to uh, keep them from being so large. And, right? if you, and if you get that information, fair game as a, as a I, reporter. I think so. Mm-hmm. Now, now, I think that there's an ethical obligation to protect the privacy of um, the parents. Um, but if, as I suspect, the answer is that um, people have people accumulate these large balances because they have severely disabled students and are in the process of spending those accounts down, it would be useful for the reporter to report that and to say, well, no, people aren't saving up $100,000 to send Johnny to Harvard, um, which is sort of the impression that's been left or opponents to vouchers are trying to spend. My guess is that that's not the case, and it would actually be useful if a reporter was able to ascertain that and um, report it. One more education-related question, Arizona. The InvestNet initiative is back, and I think going through Ledge Council this time (laughs) 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 to get it looked at, um, I guess teach, I don't, I guess the education community is giving them another chance. Uh, But there's also a competing plan, maybe a complementary plan of moving the sales tax from 0.6 to to 1 cent by uh, uh, Republican uh, Kate Brophy McGee is bringing that up. How do you see that? playing out in the future? Is it, are those the kinds of things that would cancel each other out? Uh, if invested, it makes, makes the ballot. Is there anything different this time that would change your assessment of anything of the politics of, of this? My guess is that if the, uh, increase in the dedicated, um, education sales tax is to be referred to the ballot by the legislature, there will be a poison pill in it, uh, which will say um, that if any other ballot measure passes, this does not go into effect. Um, There does appear to be some support among Republicans for this proposal, but Democrats oppose it, and I don't know that there's enough Republican support uh, to get it referred. If it is referred, I don't believe that the Republicans will permit the possibility of doubling up. You get the sales tax and you get the income tax from uh, invest in, in ed. Uh, the, th- there's been very substantial restoration of K-12 funding to pre-recession levels. Um, so I think that the argument in favor of Uh, taking a radical step in turning Arizona from one of the uh, lowest uh, income tax states among states that have an income tax, there's nine states that have no income tax, uh, into one of the highest in the 
dysfunctional economies or, or, or less well-performing economies that are in the company we would then take, um, I think it's going to be more difficult to sustain that argument once the legislature does what it's likely to do for educational funding this time around. I also um, am disappointed in the Kate Brophy McGree proposal and the support of the business community for it because K-12 education, which is where we still need the money, um, doesn't get that much more money out of that um, because the share that goes to the universities um, gets substantially increased. Uh, so um, I still would support a consumption tax increase to um, complete the restoration of K-12 funding and even go beyond um, what existed uh, pre-recession. Uh, but I'm not seeing a proposal that would actually do that getting any political traction. Yeah. And, and, and Doug Ducey <clears throat> now has a substantially improved argument um, that it's not necessary, that we can continue what we've done over the last yeah. three years uh, with um, what we can anticipate in increased revenue from existing uh, tax sources. I yeah. think his argument is steadily improving. The argument in favor of those who want to make Arizona have one of the highest income tax rates in the country is steadily declining. Yeah, and he made it pretty clear that he is going to be uh, fiercely opposed to any any new taxes, uh, whether campaigning against the initiative or keeping it off the ballot. So we'll see how that plays out this year. Very last question. Uh, were you out partying at the 16th hole of the Phoenix Open this past weekend? Uh, I have attended the uh, Phoenix Open many times in the past. We used to take you and your brothers uh, out to watch. I have never been in the stands <laughs> on the 16th hole, and I'm fairly confident that I never will be. I was... Uh, what about you? I was I was satisfied just watching it from the <laughs> comfort of my, of my couch. <laughs> Well, thanks, everyone, for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Overcast, any Spotify, any, any podcasting app. Thanks for listening.